we're going to be in the book of Ruth this morning, Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, Joshua judges Ruth. It's the like 6th, 7th, or 8th book of the Bible. Uh, and uh, if you missed last week's, I'd encourage you to get online and find the whole audio. There's Bibles underneath you, by the way, or you can just Google Ruth 2. Um, uh, we are also on, in any podcasting app, we are in there now. So if you use podcasts, if you use whatever you use, um, we're also in that. But Ruth chapter 2, um, our Advent series this year is in the book of Ruth, and it's a book that's a lot like Advent. Advent slows down the action on the play of Christmas so that we don't rush to how merry and bright it is. We, we first kind of have a time these weeks of Advent are a time of reflection in the ways and places that we're still waiting for God to move and speak and act in our lives. So instead of rushing to the celebration of what God did, we kind of bring into Christmas what we are waiting for God to do so that when we come to you know, those Christmas end of the month celebrations, what we're bringing is just this open uh, blank space for God to kind of come in and step and move. It's a place where we, Advent is a place where we acknowledge our sorrow and our heartbreak and our brokenness. And so the reason that Ruth ties into that is Ruth begins with sorrow and heartbreak and brokenness. Sorrow begins with heartbreak and brokenness. Um, the book of Ruth opens with a guy named Elimelech taking his family from their home to a neighboring country to escape a famine. Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and his two sons to, to a place called Moab to escape a famine. And shortly after moving in, they barely get the boxes unpacked before Elimelech dies. Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi and her two sons. Well, it's all okay because Naomi's two sons marry, uh, and they, they, one marries a woman named Orpah and one names a woman named Ruth, and all is well and good for about 10 years until both of the sons die, leaving Ruth Na Ruth and Orpah with their mother-in-law, Naomi, alone in a world that does not value or have ways for women to be alone. Women couldn't own property. They didn't really have a say in any kind of legal battle. At this time in history, if you had to choose between a man and a woman for a guilty party, it was generally assumed that the woman was guilty. And so this is not a great time for them to be without income, without men to protect them. And so Naomi makes the impossible decision to return home to Israel, return home to her hometown of Bethlehem, where she has heard rumor that there is a harvest again, that there is food. Along the way, Orpah decides to go stay in Moab with her people, but Ruth makes the remarkable and val valorious decision to, 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 to go with her mother-in-law to a land where she's a stranger, a land that she doesn't know the language, where she will be a foreigner, Ruth decides to go. And the end of chapter one, which we looked at last week, kind of just began with this note that they arrived in Bethlehem just in time for the barley harvest. And Ruth chapter two, verse one, picks up like this. It says <coughs> that there was a wealthy man, a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. And Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Let me pray. 
God, wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there you are present. And so as we speak of your nature in this scripture today, God, we pray that you would be present among us and that your voice would be loud, that it would be unmistakable in our lives and in our hearts. That we would hear you and do what you say. I'm reminded of, um, in one of the Narnia books, Lucy finds out that she'll uh, never be asked back to Narnia again. And she says to Aslan, who's the Christ type, she says, how shall we live never seeing you? Jesus, how could we live never seeing you? How could we live never hearing you? And so let us hear you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Ruth 1 opened with a man. It opened with a man named Elimelech. Ruth 2 opens with another man. His name is Boaz, and yet there's a sharp contrast. Elimelech is basically introduced so we can hack him off, kill him, and throw him off the stage. Boaz, however, when he is brought on stage, the author of Ruth spends a great deal of time trying to help us understand precisely what this guy is all about. Uh, The NLT, the New Living Translation, which is what we preach from, says that Boaz was a wealthy and influential man. Another translation says that he is a man of standing. Another one says uh, that he is a worthy man. The Hebrew, uh, which is the language of the Old Testament, the Hebrew literally calls him a gibor haim, which means a man of valor. A gibor haim, haim means valor. It's a word reserved for great warriors, heroes in battle. And yet here's a man named Boaz who has never faced a day of battle in his life who is described as a gibor haim, an upstanding, upright, virtuous man of valor. Now Ruth is written at the time of the judges. This is a bad time in Israel's history, a time when the text says everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so the odds of finding a man of even moderate character are very, very slim. And yet Ruth and Naomi go rolling into Bethlehem to find a guy named Boaz who is the absolute cream of the crop. And the text of of Ruth chapter two works over time to help us get a grasp that Boaz is no ordinary man. Boaz is a man of unusual character, of unusual standing, of unusual righteousness, and as it happens, unusual wealth. In every way, Boaz is contrasted with Naomi. Here is Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, who is needy and poor, who has no idea how to put food on the table and does not have a penny to her name. Meanwhile, here is Boaz who has multiple properties, who has wealth, has, there's no need that Boaz's wealth can't fix for himself, and yet it's not about his influence or about his wealth, it's about his heart. Look at uh, chapter four, uh, uh, verse four of chapter two, chapter two, verse four. It says, it says that Ruth has gone out into the field to glean wheat, and we'll explain what that looks like. And while she just happens to be on Elimelech's land, uh, on Boaz's land, who is a relative of Elimelech, uh, Boaz shows up on the job site to kind of inspect the work. And in verse four, it says, while Ruth was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. 
Here's this man of upstanding character who comes to inspect the work that his, his, his workers are doing for him in his field, and he shows up and he invokes the name and the blessing and the presence of God to be on that field. Uh, the workers respond, the Lord bless you. So Boaz isn't just running an upright, he's not just an upright person, he's running an upright organization. And in this moment, it's more than just pleasantries. In invoking the presence and blessing and name of God, Boaz's field is transformed from some barley field in some corner of Bethlehem into a sanctuary of blessing and safety and hope for Ruth. Carolyn Custis James, uh, whose book I've been reading and studying for this called The Gospel of Ruth, says, the speakers are openly summoning Yahweh to be present among them. And a few brief words, we are suddenly presented with a hint that by wandering into this particular barley field, the grieving, impoverished, socially isolated Ruth has discovered sanctuary. And in just a few lines, Ruth's life has absolutely changed. She has gone from this woman with no means to support herself to tumbling into a sanctuary where she will be safe and blessed, not only in the presence of God, but she will also have her material needs met. But let me tell you, it's just the good news is, is just getting started because Ruth, as she wanders in uh, to Boaz's field, she's doing a very common thing at this time. The Old Testament law that Israel abided by, or at least sought to, uh, and more often broke. The rule was that you left the, the edges and corners of your fields unharvested. And so that when widows and orphans came by, they could glean from the edges of your field. Um, the other rule was that as you harvested, generally what would happen is a, a line of men would go through the field with scythes and cut it down, and then a line of women would follow. A line of men or women would follow, and they would pick up that what, what was scythed down. And what they, did, what they dropped along the way was ultimately to be given to the widow and the orphan. And so Ruth has shown up in Boaz's field to do work. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just did that three times and I got tired, right? And, and, and she's gonna pick up what has been dropped. She's gonna pick up what is at the edges of the field. This is a really common thing, but when Boaz rolls in uh, into the field to see what's going on, he spies Ruth in verse five. He says, Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And like feminists in the room are like, she doesn't belong to anybody, sir. <laughs> right? She is her own woman. Thank you. Um, different time. And the foreman replies, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. Notice that her, where she's from is more important than her name. Do you notice he doesn't say her name? This is how like little she's perceived. She's just some, some lady from Moab, Right? came back with Naomi. We'll use Naomi's name because she, we know her. She's a Jew. She's an Israelite. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has, never, she has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. So Ruth has been working her tail off in Boaz's field. And it says in verse 8, Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather your grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they're harvesting and follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked, I am only a foreigner. He says, yes, I know. But I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land 
to live here among complete strangers. Verse 12, if you have a Bible, underline this. I think this is profound Old Testament writing. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Boaz, listen, the workers can't even acknowledge that Ruth is a person. She's some Moabite-ass came home with Naomi, and he goes to her, and he speaks directly to her. Men do not speak to women at this time. He speaks directly to her, and he says, stay right here. See, it was a common practice, like you kind of rotated through the fields, right? So I'll go glean from this field one day, and then the other field the next, because you didn't want to be too much of a burden to the grower, to the farmer. And yet Boaz says, you know what, stay right here. Don't go anywhere else. Stay close behind my young women. Pick up some stuff, whatever, whatever they drop you can take. By the way, um, if you get thirsty, have some of our well water, um, and, and I'll make sure you have enough. I mean, Boaz, I, I cannot go to great lengths enough that um, Boaz is the Israelite of Israelites. He was who every Israelite was supposed to be and wasn't, and yet Boaz is this righteous, upstanding, godly man who generously gives her all of these things. And not only does he speak to her and provide for her, he prays for her. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Boaz takes Ruth under his protection. It was not uncommon for women to be uh, forced upon and harassed and abused in the fields in which they gleaned. And Boaz says, no, no, no not this woman, she's under my protection. Boaz offers her water, he offers her nourishment. In chapter two, verse 14, uh, he says that the daily meal, which he is obligated to provide for his workers, that she can stop her work and eat with them at their table. Basically, he has just taken on Ruth as an employee, but she, and paying her as much, if not more, than the rest of his workers. And so it says in verse 17 that Ruth gathered gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. It was like a good idea, like you maybe came home with a small bowl after doing this, right? Because the guys that owned the fields, they weren't that generous. They said, yeah, I mean, try not to go to the edge of the field, but if you do, whatever. And so you were lucky if you got brought home enough to eat that day. She brings home enough barley, which she has beat out. So it's just like the heads of it, which I, I'm told is the part you've eaten. I never have actually seen barley in my life. And uh, I'm married to a woman from South Dakota, but he was a large animal vet. It was more about sticking your hand inside of cattle. And um, and I'm um, just saying, and so she's got this basket full of barley, which is enough to feed her and Naomi for a, a week. She carried it home, verse 18, uh, and showed it to her mother-in-law, and Ruth gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. That's a bad translation. NIV gets it better, that Ruth like kind of eats half of her meal and then gives the rest of it to her mother-in-law to make sure her mother-in-law has eaten. Never once in my entire life have I done this. Never once... Have I not finished a plate and been like, you look hungry, you should eat that. No, every time I've been like, oh, are, I'm like, oh, are you, are you done? Because I'll, <laughs> right? And so all of this action takes place with Ruth and Boaz on Boaz's field. And, and we'll see more of Boaz next week in the third chapter. And it'll unpack this idea that he is of, of, an, of Elimelech's relatives. That's a, that's a key theological point. In Ruth, but the camera at the end of the book, at the end of this chapter, kind of pans back to Naomi. And Naomi is, we don't know where she's living. She's living somewhere. She seems to have some sort of a house. And as the sun rose that morning, Ruth said, Hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this. And she said, Okay. And so Ruth leaves. 
and I don't know if you know this, about like 2500 BC, they didn't have iPhones then. So she couldn't like text Ruth to make sure that like she was okay. She couldn't call and check in. And so in my mind's eye, as the day wears on, because this isn't really all day's worth of labor, it's a couple of hours, but Ruth is working all day. And, and so Naomi keeps kind of going to the window to like see is Ruth coming home? Has something happened to Ruth? So she, she calms herself down and then an hour later goes back and she's not there since she, but an hour later goes back and pretty soon the sun is getting lower in the sky. It's late afternoon, it's early evening, it's dusk. There's no Ruth, it's getting dark, there's no Ruth. And then finally, Ruth comes around the corner and she's bringing this ginormous, my stepmom once had a coworker that did not know the word gigantic was to be pronounced any other way than gigantic. So she's got a gigantic basket, right? And, and she comes home with this and in verse 19, Naomi says, where did you gather all of this grain today? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she worked. And she said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. And in verse 20, may the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers, or your translation might say kinsman redeemer. The blessing to Naomi and Ruth, this blessing that Naomi, if you remember last week, begged the Lord for, Right? The Lord himself has raised his fist against me. This plea for aid is answered in Boaz. And in verse 21, it says, Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvest until the entire harvest is completed. Great, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then, this is crazy, she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer, and all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. Every day for about three, four, five months, I mean, we're talking early spring to like midsummer. Uh, she is showing up at Boaz's field to harvest the grain. And there's something about the shift from Ruth 1 to Ruth 2 that almost leaves your head spinning because Ruth 1 is sad. Like I think a lot of us were like, oh, okay, well, this is a Christmas series. All right, not that happy. Where's the hallmark? Um, but one of the things that we talked about last week was what if the gift of Ruth isn't a happier Christmas but a more honest one, right? And so um, this, this abject need and poverty and grief. I mean, Ruth is struggling with infertility. She's socially isolated. She's socially outcast. She, she is in the worst of abject poverty that you can possibly imagine. And then all of a sudden in Ruth too, it's like, oh, well, she's got work and Boaz is taking care of her and she can eat the, she's eating the grain and she's bringing home baskets and she stayed with him for the whole harvest. And it really feels like, really things like things are going up. I mean, it starts to feel like a little like a Hallmark movie. Like the only thing that we're really missing is like, you know, Ruth and Boaz, like their eyes meeting over the barley fields and which happens, um, spoiler, it's a little bit of a romance. That what brings them together is not like an ice sculpting competition like in, Harvard, like in Hallmark movies or like gingerbread baking or ice skating or building an inn or saving a town's Christmas festival. Guys, I need to work for them. I can just pump this stuff out, right? Um, what brings them together is Boaz and Ruth are kind of encountering each other every day in the, in the barley field and then in the wheat field. And yet, even though this, it also seems maybe a little like Little Orphan Annie, right? That, that musical, right? Because it's like, oh, things are really bad, but like an intermission, like a couple of songs and a key change later, everything's fine because of Daddy Warbucks. 
But like we can't miss that it's still hard for Ruth. It's still hard for Naomi. I mean, the, the, there's some progress, but Ruth is going out every day and still putting her life in her own hands because even though Boaz has told his young men not to touch her, who says they listen? She still has to go out every day from sunup to sundown and, and gather grain and, and barley, which is more work than you and I do in a day. Like sitting is the new smoking and I smoke like 30,000 packs a day or something now, you know? And it's still hard because they're living in a culture that they are voiceless. Uh, the Hebrew word, fun fact, the Hebrew word for widow comes from the Hebrew word for silenced. They're connected words. In Hebrew, like one word kind of shades the other. It's interesting. They have no voice, they have no power, they have no influence, they are entirely dependent on Boaz. And the only thing that has changed the fortunes from Ruth 1 to Ruth 2 is that little line in verse 3 that says, you know, and as it happened, there was this guy named Boaz. And just by chance, she ended up in Boaz's field. And by a, a weird streak of luck, by a weird streak of luck, she was able to get some food that day and for the rest. But Listen, if it's all about luck, if this story is all about chance, and if this story is all about circumstances just happening to blow Naomi and Ruth's way after a, couple, after a decade and a half of really terrible stuff, if that's what this is about, who's to say that in chapter 3, Boaz doesn't die of a sudden heart attack, and his son from far away, who everybody knows is a giant jerk, comes to take over the business? He harasses and abuses Ruth and starves Naomi. Who's to say that just by luck Naomi doesn't die and now Ruth is a Moabitess in a village that doesn't like her? If this is a story all about chance, any of us that have played poker can say with certainty that as quickly as luck shows up, it evaporates and goes away. The hinge point from Ruth 1 to Ruth 2 is not that little line as it happened. The hinge point from Ruth 1 to Ruth 2, the thing that totally turns the story, is this little, little tiny line in chapter 2, verse 20, where Naomi says, May the Lord bless him. He is showing his kindness to us all as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives. A better translation would be, blessed be the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness or his hesed to the living and to the dead. That's, that's the hinge point. That's the hinge point. Because you know, when the author of Ruth writes that little phrase, as it happened, the question is, does he just, does the author, does he or she really just think, yeah, that this is just about chance, that this is just about fate? Or, or does the author use that phrase tongue in cheek? It's really the latter. It's more than just fate and chance and luck and circumstance in Ruth. In fact, that word as it happened, that little turn of a phrase appears 20 times in the Old Testament. And every time it does, it, it, it's not about, it's not about, oh, like by luck of the draw, everything turned out. 
it's the author saying what appears to be luck is really the God of the universe who is himself, the beginning and the end, taking all of these loose ends in our stories and yanking them together in his strength and wrapping them into a new story and a new tapestry, something that was unexpected and surprising and yet entirely under his control the whole time, which then leads to a whole other set of questions. It leads to a whole other set of very fair questions. Did God cause Naomi's husband to die? Did God cause the two sons to die? Did, it, did God cause Ruth and Orpah's infertility? Or did he simply allow it? And frankly, what's the difference between causing and allowing? Did he, was he kind of like a hockey player in a penalty box, God? Did he have to kind of be in the penalty box to watch all of these terrible things happen to Ruth and Naomi, but then chapter two began and he got out of the penalty box so he could fix it? These are big questions that are answered better by people who are smarter than me in books far bigger than you dare believe exist. But let's stick with the answer that the text gives. Let's stick with the answer that we see in chapter two, verse 20, that despite all of these things, despite the death and the grief and the infertility and the sorrow, despite all of these things, blessed be the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness, his hesed to the living and to the dead. Our lives are not mere chance. God's blessing isn't just a matter of a roll of the dice and a mere hope. What changes Ruth's story, what changes ours, no matter how hard and disappointing and wounding, know how deep the struggle, what changes the trajectory of my story and your story is the hesed of God. And in, the end, I, and in this version, it's calling it the kindness of God, and that softens its meaning because hesed is a word that means the steadfast, covenantal, faithful, bulletproof, fireproof uh, love of God. It is a love of which only God could be the subject because it is a love that high and that wide and that deep and that broad. It is a love that Paul says surpasses understanding. And it is a love, at the same time, Paul prays for us to know, a love that is durable and faithful and transformative, a love which God is recklessly and overwhelmingly in favor of giving you and of giving me. And a lot of us have done this. I've been, a, I've been a Christian my whole life. When some of us were together at this guy's this weekend together and we shared our testimonies and I said, you know what? There's not a time in which, and this is true, there's not a time in which I, I can think that I did not know that Jesus loved me and there's not a time in which I didn't know what the gospel meant. There's not a time in which the love of God hasn't made my life more complicated, not less. The love of God does not simplify Ruth and Naomi's stories. It makes it far more complex. Because here is a God whose love has not forgotten Naomi and Ruth, not after one funeral or two or three or 10 years of pregnancy tests coming up empty, that, that the love, the hesed, the steadfast, durable, unending, 
uh, the love that Paul says surpasses our understanding, that love is the hinge point for Ruth and Naomi. So, so if, you're, if you're a person that's like heard this stuff before, can you try to mentally enter a place this morning uh, where you are re-receiving that God love for you is that durable? That Can you re-receive and perhaps like try to rub the grit out of your eyes to see this God who, despite your best understandings of your situation, has love for you? Which, by the way, would perhaps be one of the first things that we want to draw out of this text, which is that our circumstances are not a reflection of God's love, which is perhaps like Church 101, Right? And I'm, I'm watching the faces of you that like know this and you're like, yes, okay, I pay you to be more profound than this, Kyle. Our experience, our, our circumstances, our sufferings, our disappointments, our trials, our failures, those experiences do not mean that God does not love us. In fact, from God's perspective, the whole series of our lives, the whole series of circumstances in our lives is such that he is able to grab all of these loose ends and hurt strings and and, and hard things. And he's able to somehow, because he's stronger than anybody that you've ever met, because God's love is not mamby-pamby, limp-wristed, snuggly love. God is a warrior and God is a lion. And he takes these things with arms that like look more like Zach's than like mine. And he pulls them together And he yanks them together and puts them together in an impossible way that we didn't see coming that is entirely surprising, that might best be described as as it happened and yet was entirely his plan from all along. And in the end, in the midst of our sorrow and our grief, in the midst of the sorrow that Ruth and Naomi walk through in this book, God continues to give them one thing. He gives them himself. He gives them himself. Here's a God who very quietly and yet at every turn is orchestrating circumstances and providing for them, providing for Ruth and Naomi at the end of her long day's work some cooked heads of grain. He gives them bread. And much, much later in a town called Bethlehem in this little village where Ruth and Naomi are trying to scrape out a living would come a man, a man would come from this town whose name is Jesus, who would later say, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Yet anyone who eats the bread from heaven will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I offer the world so it may live is my flesh. What Ruth and Naomi didn't know was that this strong God who was tying all the loose ends of their life together had this great loose end that he was going to work out generations later as a young woman named Mary and her husband Joseph, whose marriage has barely survived rumors of her, of her, of her unfaithfulness, just a few blocks away maybe knock on the door of an inn where the innkeeper shakes his head because there is no room there, but he lets them into the stable on the back and soon Mary's water breaks and her labor pains grow long and it comes from her womb, the one who is himself the bread of life. 
who is our Emmanuel, who says, in the midst of your suffering, which I myself will take on. We sing this song, what child is this? who laid to rest on Mary's lap is uh, sleeping. Uh, Nail, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Yet we sing that this is Christ the King, that this Jesus, this word of the Father, this bread of life is born in this little backwater town where Ruth and Naomi are trying to scrape out their life so that Jesus can grow and break and offer himself to us so that he can grow and take all of our sufferings and all of our pain on himself. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, scripture says, and he comes and he says, I am the bread of life. He loves us. Regardless of what our circumstances say, he loves us. And somehow this bread of life is is using his strength to bring all of these confusing sufferings together into something that is good. And something that we don't like call good enough, but that is good. And in the end, this is Christ the King, who born in a stable in Bethlehem does not stand far away from our sufferings, but who leaves the house of bread, who grows to become a man, and in whose dying and rising again we are assured that the Lord has not forgotten his kindness toward us. That the Lord has not forgotten his kindness to you. Father, we um, come before you today and we feel forgotten, some of us, and we feel um, in great need. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would help us to see you would help us to see not to see that you would help us to know that we are not forgotten today. That Jesus, your birth in that manger in a town called Bethlehem, that was the greatest gift and a down payment on your remembering of us.